Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have questions from our webinar guests on reading Revelation. So Scott, before we get into these great questions that our participants of the webinar had for you that we weren't able to address in the webinar, uh, we got an exciting opportunity at Northern that's coming up. We're calling it the Taste of Northern. And what we're doing is opening all our doors, um, throwing out the red carpet, welcoming everyone for a free week of classes. And there's a number of different class opportunities, whether it's a theology or urban leadership and ministry class that we have. Um, One of them is your Scott, though, so would you mind sharing a little bit about what somebody might experience if they either came to class or participated via Northern Live in the class that you're teaching right now? Yeah, I'm I'm excited about what Northern is doing, is giving people an opportunity to experience what seminary education is, and I'm hoping that people will more people will come to my class than David Fitch's. <laughs> I'm doing I'm teaching a course on Romans right now. And it's, um, it's really using the book of Romans as a model of how to do contextual theology. And so we're looking at Romans 12 through 16 right now as the context for the book of Romans. And we're trying to show that by examining the context of Romans carefully, the whole letter becomes a pastoral letter about pastoral issues in Rome probably also in Corinth, but then it becomes a letter for the church rather than a letter for philosophical theologians who can debate the meaning of justification and the new perspective and the old perspective instead of seeing how this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, which has been profoundly influential in the history of the church, and Douglas Campbell has recently written a book, and, and he says that Paul is the most important an influential theologian philosopher in Western world, which which could very well be true. So uh, we're going to be looking at at Romans, and I invite people to come to class and enjoy the conversation that we get to have in discussing uh, Romans in its historical context. We talk about the city of Rome. Yeah. Uh, the debate of the strong and the weak. It's been it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, and my MANT cohort, uh, we did this class in an intensive with you earlier, I guess last year in 2017, yeah. and it was very insightful, and I think feel has already had impacts in my ministry. So we would love Good. to have you join us, whoever you are listening, um, wherever you are. Just go to seminary.edu slash taste, and you can learn more info and sign up. I'll also include the link in the show notes to be able to sign up um, because hopefully we'd love to be able to have you out. So we've got some revelation questions and comments to get to, don't we, Scott? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All right. So I'm going to start here with something Johanny Seed said, which was a a very um, insightful comment, and I think you got some things to share about that. He said, I'm originally from Ethiopia, and I came to Christ when churches were under the communist reign, and Revelation was a book that brought hope and longing. You know, I said uh, in the webinar that... We ruin the book of Revelation, and we don't read it responsibly when we turn it into speculative, 
discussions about when the rapture will occur Mm -hmm. or how long the millennium lasts Mm -hmm. and divorce it from the theological and historical context of the churches in Asia Minor under the Roman Empire experiencing persecution. That the letter is ultimately a letter for marginalized, persecuted, and martyred people. Well, they're not martyred yet, but who could be martyred. And therefore, it is is a letter that brings incredible hope and imagination and daily strength for people who are undergoing persecution. And my experience with Christians in the world has been that the, uh, has been this is that is that Christians who are going through persecution love the book of Revelation mm-hmm. and they don't get into speculations they read it and they say our God is going to enter into history and he's going to break the bonds of evil he is going to establish justice and bring peace and we are his people and we are waiting for God to act yeah, and I think one of the things that is so helpful with this is that the hermeneutical distance, that's how I've heard it talked about before, isn't as great for those who are in difficult situations because that's the context in which Revelation was written to, right? Yeah, I don't know who used that expression with you, but they are absolutely right. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. There's less hermeneutical distance for those who are going through stress and persecution than for those who... Uh, who are going to read it in light of Hal Lindsey and wonder about the rapture. Yeah, which is Chuck Roberts' comment that yes. uh, I think you got some insight on. Chuck says, I grew up saturated with Hal Lindsey. Revelation is almost all our pastor ever talked about, and as an adult, I gave up on it. How do I rid myself of all the old thinking and also of the influence of the Schofield Bible, etc. I stopped considering myself a dispensationalist years ago, but the thinking continues to dominate my thinking. I guess I start by reading something like Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, I suppose. Any insights that you'd have to share for Chuck? Well, you know, um, someone else named, uh, last name is Wright, not N.T. Wright, C. Wright, said, how would you approach someone obsessed with the trivialities? And that's, uh, I'm pretty sure this is what Chuck Roberts and a couple other people asked this question. Mm -hmm. All right. um, I know Chuck Roberts' experience because I went through that myself. And um, I think I was able to be saved because saved uh, from from too much experience of it is because when I taught at Trinity in my first 12 years of, of the academic world, uh, I was focusing on the Gospels, and because we had so many new professors, uh, New Testament professors, I didn't have to teach the book of Revelation, so I was able to regather my thoughts by the time I got to North Park and began to teach the book of Revelation a little bit every year. Um, I, I had completely reformulated how I was going to approach the book of Revelation, and I no longer was worried about rapture questions and millennium questions. So... Um, and I think uh, my experience is unlike what most pastors have, and I don't think that Chuck Roberts or others are going to be able to escape from the reality of daily living and daily teaching and daily questions. So here's my here's my contention. I think of pastors, uh, many pastors, who really want to regather themselves, regroup, and reimagine the Book of Revelation, need to spend a summer studying the book of Revelation and not talking about it, not teaching about it, uh, not even necessarily telling people what they're doing, just to keep people uh, 
out of their nest and uh, so they can rethink and reimagine. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is I, I say you need some isolated time. The second thing I would say is as you work the book of Revelation and read books like Michael Gorman, and um, I want to mention a few books that I think are digestible for pastors uh, that they could use. They could read one a week, maybe uh, three or four in, uh, in a summer, and reimagine how to think about the book of Revelation. I've mentioned Michael Gorman's wonderful book, Reading Revelation Responsibly. But I also like a book by J. Nelson Crabill called Apocalypse and Allegiance. The subtitle is Worship, Politics, and Devotion in the Book of Revelation. I found this to be a really helpful book. It was a little dense at times for some classes that I taught, but overall, I think that this is also a very useful book. Now, everybody uh, reads and has read, uh, who works on Revelation, a book that I failed to mention last time, and I think it's because I assumed it. It's by Richard Baucom, and it's called The Theology of the Book of Revelation. It is absolutely a wonderful book on giving you the big themes. And uh, Baucom is both theologically alert and a brilliant historian. There's another book by a man named Greg St Gregory Stevenson called A Slaughtered Lamb. It's subtitled Revelation and the Apocalyptic Response to Evil and Suffering. And... Um, I think it's an exceptional book on the book of Revelation. And two more now. I know I'm talking a lot of books here. David De Silva, my friend who is at Ashland Seminary, um, wrote a book called Unholy Allegiances, Heeding Revelation's Warning. And this is also a wonderful introduction, historically sensitive, but theologically alert as well. And the final one is an African-American uh, theologian, New Testament scholar, named Brian Blount, called Can I Get a Witness? Reading Revelation Through African-American Culture. And you know that he is going to bring into it injustices and how the book of Revelation announces victory for the truth and for justice in the way of God. So I, I would urge pastors, first of all, to take a retreat. Secondly, during this retreat, to study the book of Revelation, uh, just read the book over and over, catching big themes. Third is to read books like these to reimagine the book of Revelation. And then the last point I would make is uh, isolate three to five major issues about evil in the world today and decide to preach against those uh, evils and injustices as a way of entering into the themes of the book of Revelation. So uh, slavery in the world, uh, sexual uh, injustices in the world, uh, economic injustices, poverty, structural and systemic violence against people run by people who are in power, who are using their power against the good in their societies and using their political power to subdue people, to silence voices. Start thinking about themes like that instead of just, you know, uh, the trivialities is what one of our readers or listeners called them. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's my suggestion. But I, I really don't believe that we can pick up the book of Revelation if we've grown up in these triviality uh, issues 
and all of a sudden have a new imagination. I think it's going to take some work to reform our mind to think about the greatness of the vision of the book of Revelation and how God is going to bring justice and reconciliation in the world. Yeah, those are some great resources, and I'll make sure to include those in the show notes if you want links to those um, so they can all be in, in one place for you there, as well as the ones he mentioned on the webinar. Uh, so one of those things that is definitely not a triviality, but is an important theme and, and character um, in the book of Revelation is the woman in Revelation 12. And Julie asks from the webinar, if you have any comments on the woman of Revelation 12. This is very interesting because, yes, I do. And um, uh, I came at this from a strange angle and was not even aware of this. Now, here, here's the angle. I was asked to give um, sort of an evangelical biblical understanding of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So I was interested in this because I, I like the dialogue that we've had with Catholic churches, and I know on Mary that Protestants and Roman Catholics differ dramatically, along, and we differ also with Eastern Orthodox. So I began to study all the Mary texts, and I really focused on the Gospels because that's kind of my focus, and there isn't, you know, they're, they're just, you're not going to get much out of Paul. But this is a strange thing I noticed, is Revelation 12, for Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, talks about Mary. So I checked some evangelical-type commentaries on Revelation, and they don't even bring up Mary. Now, I want you to listen to this text. Revelation 12 says, A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crowd of 12 stars. Now, before I say anything, let me say this. In the history of Christian art, that is the way Mary, mother of Jesus, has been painted. And when I was at North Park, we used to go to a church uh, for our grad for our commencement, uh, baccalaureate, I guess it was. And 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 we would uh, we would see this picture of Mary, uh, this painting, and I thought that that's from Revelation twelve one. Hmm. Now here's what it says: She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and in agony of giving birth. Now, that's, the, that's some woman who gives birth to a child. Then another portent uh, appeared in the heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. It's pretty hard to avoid the idea that the dragon is connected to Satan. Right. And as she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. All right, number one, that's Jesus. No one questions that that's Jesus. And who is the woman who gave birth to Jesus? Mary. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. Now, that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that she could be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, is that Mary? Does that correspond to anything we know about Mary? For some people, yes. For others, no. Then there was a war that broke out in heaven. Michael, the dragon, etc. The dragon was thrown down to earth. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice. Then it goes to verse 13. So when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman 
who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured like water, but the earth came, etc. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. All right, so I read this and I said, listen, you cannot get away from the early part of the depiction of that woman sounding so much like Mary. You have to be a question beggar to to deny that it's about Mary. But then the image of Mary seems to morph into like the mother of the church because it's the children of Jesus. And maybe they saw Mary in those terms, but it's not characteristic of the New Testament to give that kind of image of, of Mary. If the book of Revelation is written from the Ephesus region, or John is from the Ephesus region, and he is on the island of Patmos, if Mary is connected to Ephesus, and she is in very early Christian history, then it's possible that this is a depiction of Mary. So uh, I, I, am quite, I am quite convinced that there is at least some elements of the mother of Jesus in Revelation 12 on the basis of what we would call in the Wesleyan tradition a plain reading of Scripture. It just seems like that to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, it also seems to transcend Mary in normal ways. So maybe maybe the image of Mary morphs into the church and no longer Mary, or maybe Mary is seen uh, as the one who, along with uh, the apostles, gave rise to early Christian faithfulness. Either way, I think Julie has asked a wonderful question, and I've done my best to give a simple answer. I write about this a little bit in my book called The Real Mary. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I guess you would say it might be safe to put a dragon in your nativity scene then if you wanted to do that? (laughs) Well, now that is an interesting (laughs) idea. Maybe that's a whole other concept. (laughs) It would surely give your Christmas um, a realistic theme that when the Son of God was born, he was being attacked Mm -hmm. by the evil of Satan. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's probably maybe another uh, conversation for another day. But Brad asks a good question, and he says, regarding the theme of response of true worship, was one of the things that you talked about in the webinar, um, true worship can be more, excuse me, can more be said about what Revelation-inspired worship might look, feel like, compared to what American Christians are used to for worship. Yes, he's asking uh, how the book of Revelation can help us reframe or understand what worship would be. Now, there's all kinds of places to go in the book of Revelation about worship, but I've chosen to answer this question by looking at Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation 4, verse uh, 8, we read, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. So let's say there's two things here. First is, Worship is about ascribing holiness to God. Secondly, worship is about identifying who the true God is. So let's just start with those two themes, holiness and identification of who God is, the Lord God Almighty. In verse 11, we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, And by your will, they existed and were created. Now, we'll add 
two more themes to worship. It's about God's holiness, and it's about identifying who God is. It is also about ascribing worthiness, glory, honor, and power to God. So true worship is to declare the worthiness of God. A fourth theme is that we have reasons for this, and it is anchored in this text in creation and in God's sustaining of all creation. So holiness, identifying who God is, ascribing worth and glory and honor to God, and knowing the reasons for our worship. In chapter 5, we have this in verse 9. You are worthy, so we have ascribing worth to God, to take the scroll and to open its seals, and here's the reason. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made these saints, this is the church, into you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. So the church is the kingdom. So here we have holiness, identification of God, ascribing worth to God, and reasons. The reason is creation, and the second reason given here then is redemption. Verse 12, we have more. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So again, we are ascribing worth, but worth here is expanded to include power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And then finally, we have more about the identification to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb for blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So four Four ideas about worship in just these two chapters from direct statements of, of worship of God. We, are, we recognize the absolute holiness of God. We recognize who God is. God, who is Lord God Almighty, who has revealed himself in the Lamb. Third, we ascribe worth and honor and power and glory and wealth and blessing to God. So genuine worship is to say things to God about his utter worthiness of our worship. And fourth, we have reasons for our worship. The fundamental two reasons of worship in the Bible are God as creator and God as redeemer. So yes, I totally agree with uh, Brad that we learn a lot about worship in the book of Revelation. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I've heard, and I, I hope I can articulate this at least somewhat close, and maybe do it a little justice, is the connection between seeing worship as a way in which we wage war, even in the fact of like, you know, you think the situation of those who, who for all intents and purposes, can't really fight for themselves, uh, being the people that, that John is writing to, and the way in which they worship is kind of a way that they can wage war, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and that kind of brings a, a connection to Brian's question here, when he said, you said that revelation is a war on evil. Apart from the regeneration of Christ, isn't evil in all of us? If so, isn't it, an, isn't it unhealthy to only make the warring judgments for the empire and not for all of humanity? Uh, Brian's asked a, a nuanced question uh, that I would say, first, uh, we, we need to deal with the big picture. The big picture in the book of Revelation is that the people of God 
are on the right team and they're on the team that's going to win and they are living right and they are living honestly and with integrity before God and they are going to be vindicated at the end. So there is a strong us versus them mentality in the book of Revelation. The second idea, so first there is we have to recognize that the people of God are going to be vindicated. The second is this, that in the book of Revelation, stereotypically, uh, and this is typical of Christian literature and most apocalyptic literature in the first century or in the, in the Jewish world, and that is the opponents of the people of God are cast as the enemies. So in this book, uh, Rome and the empire connected to Rome is depicted as the enemy. So that is the big, those are the two big ideas uh, when it comes to evil. So the evil in the book of Revelation is predominant. Now, I'm not saying that Revelation 2 through 3 doesn't warn people about being faithful, but it only warns people about unfaithfulness because they're supposed to be faithful, and this book is for those who are faithful. Um, The book of Revelation then warns that there will be judgment against evil, and this is classic apocalyptic warning, and it is classic for understanding how the book of Revelation works, is that the evil empire will be brought down and the true people of God will be vindicated before God. It is true, of course, that human beings are sinful and that all human beings need to be warned of sin. And I think I would come at this, uh, in a sense, the way the book of Revelation does. Not that I would turn this book against the church, but I would say that that the church at times, and far too often, has become complicit in the empire and complicit in the world, and therefore what is being said about the world, about the empire, about Rome, is being said indirectly to the church if the church doesn't repent and turn from its empire ways and complicity in injustice and evil. Yeah, So, and one of the difficulties to get to that place is something that it feels like we have had a number of questions about and have come up a time or again, is that um, in many churches, and Bernard asked this question and Joel kind of asked a similar question, is uh, he says, in our church, the main discussion seems to be over and over again, shouldn't we take Revelation as literal as possible? Saying anything less than that is a distrust of Scripture's. So we kind of get this war of literal versus maybe figurative, you might say, um, and and in particular, maybe famous pop pastors who have huge platforms might really try to wave the banner of saying, "Hey, we're right because we're literal," and if you take the the book of Revelation as figurative, then you're wrong. I wonder if you'd have any um, any guidance for Bernard and Joel and really all of us who are kind of helping people walk that that road and try to understand Revelation accurately, maybe is another way we could say it. Yes, and this is a good one. And this this is, uh, let's just say the pastor does do, uh, or the whoever is interested in, in this podcast and the webinar, let's just say they decide to make the commitment to spend some time studying the book of Revelation and reading the literature and reimagining how to think about this book. Then comes the problem of trying to help people in the church understand the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And many people run, that's where they run into their problem. They're ready to move ahead, but the people 
are saying, what about Hal Lindsey? And Hal Lindsey sold 10 million copies, so God has blessed him, so he's got to be right. All right, all right, now what do we do about this? Um, I would say, first of all, the pastor has to spend time, the, the, the student, whoever it is, needs to spend oodles of time reading some apocalyptic literature. You can find these in the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha by James Charlesworth. It's a wonderful collection of ancient Pseudepigrapha. And, and I would say this, no one who reads apocalyptic literature in the Jewish world. And let's just say you read First and Second Enoch. That's all you read. Uh, and those are two long apocalypses from the Jewish world. No one who reads those books will come away thinking that this is literal. They will come away thinking that this is imagery used, and it's common imagery. And someone had asked us about starting with the book of Daniel. It starts in the book of Daniel uh, that, that these are, there are sort of uh, Flannery O'Connor-like grotesque images, bizarre images. Uh, animal, you know, we, we read in Revelation chapter 12, this right here, uh, there was a great red dragon seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, there are people who think that's literal, and they're going to look for a, a red dragon with seven heads. And then there are other people who say, because I've read the book of Daniel, because I've read First and Second Enoch, I know this is not literal. This is apocalyptic imagery for let's a seven-headed monster is going to be the system of evil with seven different kings or something like this. This could very well be Rome mm -hmm. and it's seven hills. All these sorts of things come up. And so I, I would say this, we can learn to shed the idea of, of literalism versus figurativism in interpretation by reading apocalyptic literature. And the only responsible way of reading the book of Revelation is to read it in light of the genre that it is. It is apocalyptic literature. And we have to understand how apocalyptic literature works. And we have so many examples of it. It is irresponsible on our part not to know more about them. And once we become familiar with apocalyptic literature, then we will shed this issue of whether it's being literal or figurative and say, no, it's neither, it's apocalyptic. And I have a, a little bit of a gift in understanding how this kind of imagery worked in the ancient world. And my experience in churches is when you say things like this, in the Roman world, in the Jewish world, in the Christian world, when dragons are used, we're talking about monsters that are used for violence. Mm -hmm. And people are, are gonna say, yeah, it's, it's just like Narnia. Or it's it's like the chronicle, or it's like the Lord of the Rings, or it's it's got some kind of monster image from uh, uh, zombie literature. People understand this stuff. It's not difficult. But uh, the game of literal versus figurative is is unfortunately something pastors have to work through. But the only way to do it is to offer a better reading of the Book of Revelation. And my suggestion is to start with some apocalyptic literature. 
Yeah, that's wise to to go to that and make sure you're you're in the as you're understanding the genre because that's kind of what you know you've, you you wouldn't expect a comic book to be a historical narrative of a that's right work and good so good one you gotta you gotta understand what you're expecting from the genre that you're you're in and consuming so. That's right. Well, thanks, Scott, for letting me throw these questions at you. I, I know I found it insightful on some of these different things that we are needing to be thinking through when it comes to reading Revelation. So we're going to get to some more questions for our next episode. But um, to end our time today, do you have any closing thoughts to send our listeners away with? Uh, yeah, I, w- I want to inspire leaders in the church, teachers, pastors, preachers to spend time in the book of Revelation, reading important literature, to reimagine how the book of Revelation can be meaningful in our churches today. I would encourage those pastors not to get into battles and fights and polemics with dispensationalists and with people who are reading Hal Lindsey or Salem Kurban or whoever else. Uh, John, uh, I, I don't know who else. Tim LaHaye, I guess, would be the big one today. Mm-hmm. Instead of getting into battles with those people, offer a better reading of Revelation that is more relevant to our world because it speaks about injustices and evil. Listen, the people that I uh, teach in seminaries, a lot of them are, are, I um, try to jokingly call skinny jeans people. The skinny jeans people are concerned about justice. They are the ones who are longing for a pastor to stand up and preach revelation fearlessly about evil and injustice in the world. And I want to encourage pastors to to know that they have an audience waiting to hear these things. So I I encourage them uh, to take a sabbatical in their brains and in their time, to reserve some time to work on the book of Revelation and find ways to speak to their congregation about it. Thanks, Scott, and thank you, our listener, as always, for joining us for another episode. As I said earlier, I will include links to all of the resources mentioned, as well as the link to to get a replay of the webinar if you'd like to go back and hear what Scott and I um, talked about on that original one. So um, at any time, you can use that and get that that resource. But um, also, another reminder is that we have that Taste of Northern coming up February, the week of February 5th, and we love to have you join us for whenever you're available. So um, once again, thanks for being with us, and we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 